Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, he may be most well known for his triumphant play, Torch Song Trilogy, or his performances in Hairspray or Fiddler on the Roof or the film Mrs. Doubtfire. But really, after reading his memoir, I Was Better Last Night, I've come away with such a deeper understanding of the activist, passionate, integrity-filled artist that is Harvey Firestein, and I was so honored to have a conversation with him live and in person in the incredible Bryant Park in New York City recently on a beautiful summer day. And the thing that I was so taken with is Harvey belongs to everyone, not just all of the theater lovers who came to see this conversation, but all of New York who showed up from all walks of life, because Harvey Firestein is New York. Welcome, Harvey, to the podcast, and thank you. A-OK. A-OK. Welcome, everyone, to the Brian Park Reading Room and today's first-ever Books on Broadway program. And now I'd like to introduce our host for today. Alana Levine is a stage and film actress who currently hosts her own podcast called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine, which features conversations with some of today's most successful artists in film, TV, and on Broadway. With over 250 interviews to date with today's most successful artists, Alana engages her celebrity guests in intimate conversations known for their honest and unfiltered humor. The podcast has been on the iTunes new and noteworthy list, and Alana has been listed as one of the most influential Twitter accounts to follow. I just started following you today. <laughs> Little known facts can be found on Apple Podcasts and wherever podcasts can be heard. Needless to say, we are very pleased to have her here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Ilana Levine. Hey everyone, this is such a thrill. I grew up going to this park and the idea that an iconic New Yorker like Harvey Firestein is my first interview here as part of this Books on Broadway series is pretty extraordinary. I just am gonna very briefly for the two people whose concierge said go hang out in Bryant Park until your Uber comes, I'm going to read a very truncated bio for this legend. Um, so listen, you guys, my guest today is the actor, writer, activist, icon, Harvey Firestein. As an actor, some of his Broadway credits include Torch Song Trilogy, Safe Sex, Hairspray, and Fiddler on the Roof. As a Broadway book writer, he wrote the books for La Caja Fall, Newsies, A Catered Affair, Kinky Boots, Casa Valentina, and most recently, which I highly recommend you see, Funny Girl, I saw it yesterday. But today, I really want to focus on his extraordinary memoir, I Was Better Last Night. It is hilarious and moving. It is an uncensored account of his life that takes you from his Brooklyn childhood to his time with Andy Warhol, the gay rights movement. He shares incredible showbiz stories, relationship stories, his battle with addiction, his path to sobriety, and everything in between. It is truly, truly, truly my honor to sit down today and share this time with you and Harvey Firestein. Welcome, Harvey. Welcome. Hey. I, I, I don't usually come to this park except on Christmas Eve. We have a, a Jewish tradition. Um, we drive in from the small fictional town in Connecticut that I live in. And um, 
we Jews and we and we and we we do all the windows and we do the uh, photograph by the tree and then we do the stores here and then we go have a lovely steak and go home and um, wait for Santa. So Jewish Santa. The Jewish Santa. I asked Harvey. I Chase wanted Manhattan. to begin Chase Manhattan. <laughs> Is that a Jewish name, Chase Manhattan? It's. I I, I always wanted to be Mrs. Manhattan. Well, as of today, I hereby knight you, Mrs. Manhattan. I asked Harvey for us to begin today with him reading from his book uh, so that you could get a sense of the tone and the brilliance uh, of this really special memoir. So if you would do us the okay. honors. Well, I, I, chose a, I chose a chapter that I didn't have to change too many words. Just a couple of words. Because there are children here. And I'm not used to that. Um... Uh, uh, but this is about, um, this is a story that takes place a couple of blocks from here. Remember when there was a big Toys R Us on, on Broadway? And so it takes place there in the middle of the night, um, shooting a movie called Death to Smoochie. So I'll, I'll, I'll read this. Um, I was positive that Death to Smoochie would be a huge hit, which proves how little I know. It was a satirical comedy with a cast led by Robin Williams and Edward Norton, both big draws at the time. The script was dark, dumb fun, allotting plenty of opportunities for both leads to go wild. Also featured was Jon Stewart in a rare acting gig. I was mostly impressed with the movie's lighting design. Shooting in dark, shadowy locations, the designer used saturated color and complementary hues to transform the world of children's television from rainbow happiness to unnervingly conflicted. Being on set was visually exciting, but then when I saw the movie, the colors had all been diluted and dulled. Maybe it was all too much when they viewed the footage. But I remember filming in Times Square right outside what was then Toys R Us Megastore. It was an all-night shoot, which costs plenty, so there's no canceling even if you get hit with a blizzard. We got hit with a blizzard. <laughs> we needed to shoot a scene in which I, a tough gangster type, threatened the life of Edward Norton, a wimp, in the back of a stretch limo. They put it off as long as they could, hoping the snowfall would let up so you could see something beyond the car windows. But it was not to be. The sun was about to rise, and the snow showed no sign of stopping. Danny DeVito, the director, soldiered on and shot the scene. And then my close-ups. But by the time he turned around for Edward's singles, everyone was exhausted. Danny took me aside and said, look, Poor Edwards in the back of the car, practically dead. All I need is a close-up of a truly frightened look on his face, and we can wrap for the night. I'm counting on you. Get in there, say something really scary, so I can grab the shot and we can get the heck out of here. I'll try, I said, racking my brain for something that would frighten an actor who'd played opposite Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, and Francis McDormand. Danny put me in place, almost on top of Edward, squeezing him into the corner of the car's back seat. I brought my face inches from his, as close as I could without getting into the frame. And as soon as Danny called action, I began to darkly hiss directly into his mouth. You so pretty. I wished I had a doll of you. I wish I had a doll of you, and I'd make love to it. Edward's face turned white. Danny yelled, cut. Edward sprang out from under me and bolted from the car off into the blinding snowstorm. Not that we run into the same circles, but I don't think he's ever spoken to me again. Danny does like the look of danger. In another scene, which I think was excised from the movie, he had me threaten John Stewart by standing on his privates. He laid poor John on the ground and had me tower over him, the heel of my shoe dangerously close to his genitalia. Of course, they placed rails for me to lean on so I wouldn't accidentally slip and destroy his lineage. But it was still a scary prospect for John. And as soon as Danny called, cut, Mr. Stewart sprang out from under me. And although we don't run in the same circles, I don't believe he's ever spoken to me again either. So that's, 
An adventure in Hollywood. I want to talk a little bit about process because this is a book that really takes you from childhood to today, basically. And I want to know about memory. I want to know how you came up with the idea to begin with. And then when you had to sit down in earnest, when people were like, yeah, that's a great idea. How did you do it? Because the detail like that of, of every moment, we all just felt like we were there in the story with you. Um, talk to me a little bit about the beginning and then how you sat down and wrote each day. Well, what happened was COVID. <laughs> COVID hit. And so the first thing I did was I cleaned my desk as everyone did, right? I did the laundry, I cleaned the desk, I got rid of my list um, and COVID was still there. So I went down to my sewing room, I make quilts. And I caught up on all these quilts I owed. People had babies, people got married. I made five quilts. Even I was bored to death. And I didn't know what to do next because COVID was still there. My agent said, have you ever thought about writing your memoir? I said, I don't write long form. And then I thought, why am I saying no to something? I've got a computer, I have nothing else to do. If I don't like it, nobody has to see it. So I sat down and I started writing. I called a friend, love the name dropping. Her name, you might have heard of her, Shirley MacLaine. She's written nine of these autobiographies, you know. And I figured who better than she uh, to know what to do. And I, and I said, how do you do this? What, what do you put in? And she had very wise words. She said, let your memory be your editor. Don't push yourself to remember stuff. Just let it come, and as it comes, you put it down, and your memory will take care of you. And I said, look, I don't care about me. I made the choice to sit down and write and tell these stories, and hopefully truthfully. But there are a lot of dead people in my life, people who never got to tell their stories, people whose stories will never get told. How do I handle what should be said, what shouldn't be said, and she said, once again, let your memory be your guide because you're, even when you're writing someone else's life, you're really still writing about yourself. You're always writing about how they affected you and how they filtered through your life. So the facts will not always match up. Um, but it's your version, and that's what's important. And, uh, and so I, that's what I listened to, and that's how I wrote it. And I did sit and just, every day I'd get up, we were in lockdown, I'd get up, I'd go to my computer, I'd sit down and I'd write what logically was the next chapter. Did you write this book chronologically? I did. So you are such... Um we feel like you are ours. As New Yorkers, we feel so much pride that we are related, that you are Mishpacha, Harvey Firestein, right. to all of us. Um, tell us a little bit about growing up in Bensonhurst. Who was in the house with you? Tell, like, Just take us back to the beginning, which is where you start your yeah. story. Well, B Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, most of you would know from uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. Somebody waving from back there. Bay Parkway and 62nd Street. Well, 79th and 21st. Um, Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever. The the, the Honeymooners. Uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, um, French Connection. They all took place in the blocks around where I grew up. So um, it was quite an active set for, for um, growing up. Um, we had the Yeshiva of Bensonhurst on one corner and the JCH on the other. So I was totally surrounded um, until I left to go to Manhattan and go to high school with her. <laughs> you think I didn't see you sitting there, didn't you? you? Didn't think. What I love about doing these things in New York, I live in a small fictional town in Connecticut. Um, so when I come to New York, what's a lot of fun, especially doing this stuff, is people that I haven't seen in a long time show up. I did a event at the um, 
the library. You, you, you've seen they have a library here. And I did an event here at the library. And um, somebody I haven't seen since I was 14 years old showed up. Uh, my best friend from back then. And um, so, so it's really been a lot of fun. So anyway, so I, so I grew up in that, in that atmosphere. It was um, Italians and Greeks and Jews. Um, and we all sort of watched each other. Um, a little distrustful, um, but there was no, there were no people of color until you went to the Chinese restaurant, um, or um, until I went to Manhattan, and all of a sudden was born into the real world. But what, but what I came to realize in that small, so I have friends. It was a shtetl. I have friends who only went to Manhattan once in their whole lives when their school took them to the Empire State Building or when their school took them to the Statue of Liberty. Otherwise, they've never left Bensonhurst. Or maybe they went to Bay Ridge or Flatbush for a movie. But that's, but that's it. And, and I was lucky enough that my world opened up and, and, and I ended up in, in this larger world, but, but it did take some work. My brother went to Stuyvesant High School. I went to Art and Design. Which way are we looking? That way. That way, 57th Street and 2nd Avenue. He went to Stuyvesant down on 14th Street. But your mom, this is a Broadway book series, and your mother introduced you to Broadway really early. Yes. My mother would get... There's people here who will remember. Remember Q Magazine? Before New York Magazine, there was a magazine called Q, and it arrived every Monday, I think it was, and she went right to what's opening on Broadway and sat down and wrote out uh, an, an order for tickets. That's how you did it then. And she ordered tickets for the center of the first row of the mezzanine for every show that was opening. And we saw everything. Tickets were $2 to $2.50. So a family of four could see a Broadway show for $10, plus the subway was 15 cents then. 60, so 60 cents for the subway and, and, um, and $10 for the tickets. And we saw everything, which sometimes didn't work so good for family. You know, for little kids sitting through Virginia Woolf was a little strange. Um, she would have to sometimes explain crap to us during the intermission, um, I do remember we went uh, the royal sh- the royal ballet company. Uh, the, um, it was the royal ballet company came to uh, to to, um, to the Met, the old Met. Um, you know, we didn't have Lincoln Center then. We had the old Metropolitan Opera House, and um, they came there. And the opening curtain was a painting by Chagall. And it was a huge, we were seeing the Firebird. So it was a huge Firebird that had these huge breasts. And my brother and I, we were probably six and four, um, just could not stop giggling over the giant breasts on this bird. Um, But yeah, we saw everything. I mean, I saw... You know, name a Broadway show. I saw it. I saw Funny Girl. I saw The Sound of Music. I saw Gypsy. We saw everything. Um, But you didn't make this direct connection when I read your book. A lot of kids who became successful in the arts the way you did talk about, I saw a Broadway show, and I thought, this is what I want to do. Oh, yeah, no. Had no interest in acting, no interest in writing. I wanted to be an artist. I knew I wasn't a very good artist. I was artistic, which is uh, the 1950s word for gay. You know, it's like, there's Harvey. He's artistic. Um, And so that's why they pushed me into the art world. And I knew I wasn't a great artist by any means, but but art and design uh, was a was a vocational school where they taught us to letter and they taught us to do to do paste-ups and they taught us to develop film and all that. And I knew that I would never be a great artist, but I knew I could be a technician for some other artist. And I thought that's what I would do with my life. A friend of mine uh, in, in our first years, uh, her mother was starting a community theater group and she look for kids that would come sit in the basement of a church and make handmade posters. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And we went down to this church basement, got stone smelling um, uh, magic markers. And, um, and, that, and that's how it started. I mean, 
I have a philosophy which is kind of simplistic and stupid, but it is how my life works. Yeah, it's Harvey Feierstein. Because, <laughs> oh my God, it's Harvey Feierstein. I know who I am. Um, I have this philosophy of um, you're sitting at home, you know, and you're watching TV or you're, you're eating a sandwich or whatever, and a, the phone rings and a friend says, you want to go do such and such, and you're automatically say no. Because it's like you don't want to do it. You know, I'm like, I'm doing this. Life does not change if you say no. Life does not get better if you say no. Life only changes. The adventure only comes when you say yes. Not that it always gets better. Not that it's always a, the right answer. But yes is progress. No is nothing. And so I was a kid that for some reason I was very brave. And I said yes to a lot of stuff I should not have said yes to. And um, and all and you know and, and and it's led me down this this very strange path. I mean, most people, as you said, you you, you showbiz books, you open them and they say, "I saw Ethel Merman on stage and said that's gonna be me someday." I couldn't have cared less. I mean, I loved seeing them, but I didn't want to do that. You know, then cut. 50 years later, I was Ethel Merman standing on a stage singing and dancing in a red wig. Yeah. So that's, that's the way life can work sometimes. Well, it sounds like that sort of visual artistry that you were a part of and making, somehow, I mean, I don't care who you are, Every Andy Warhol really was, it wasn't just 15 minutes, he was the most prominent artist of his day. And you were of that time. So how do you go from painting posters for your friend's mother's theater company to being a part of, of the world of the factory and Andy Warhol's visions? Once again, just truly stupid. <laughs> There was an ad in the paper. Andy Warhol was going to do a play. I was a huge fan of Warhol's. Not of his pop art yet. I was a fan of his drawings in for Bloomingdale's. He used to do the fashion drawings for Bloomingdale's and the Sunday Times every week. Those wonderful drawings of shoes and, oh, the, a broken line, you know, an ink drawing. I, just absolutely phenomenal. And I was in love with his drawing. Um... But I saw this thing that said Andy Wall was doing a play, and I thought, wait a second, you've been doing community theater. You're like an actor. <laughs> so I got my friend Irene Stein to take a photograph of me. I had a little, a little enlarger in my basement. I blew up the picture. I made an 8 by 10 I, I, I wrote out my resume, you know, from the community theater, put it together, and went off to the East Village to find something called La Mama, Vebaste. Um, and I'm walking down the street and there's like the Truck and Warehouse Theater and there's the New York Theater Ensemble and 82 Club. Anybody here remember the 82 Club? Am I, oh good, Somehow, at least I'm not still alone in the world. 82 Club was the last drag club in New York was the last legitimate drag club in New York. All the entertainers were drag queens. All the waiters were women uh, in men's clothing. Anyway, um, I'm walking up and down the block going, where the fuck is this? Well, sorry, children. You were going to hear that sooner or later. Hey, if you're going to hear it from the first time, let yeah. it be from Harvey yeah. Firestein. Yeah. So I'm walking up and down the block, and there was an old black woman sweeping the street. She said, what are you looking for, baby? I said, I'm looking for something called La Mama. She said, this is La Mama. I said, how do you know? She said, I'm La Mama. Get in there. Um, and she turned out to be Ellen Stewart, who was then, from almost that day, became my mama, my spiritual mama for the next 40 years of my life. Um, Ellen and I were, were, she guided my life. She was with me um, every step of the way. Um, anyway, and so, so I went in to this audition where there were all these kind of Warhol people. And um, I mean, I was 16, you know, <laughs> and I walk in and they said, um, uh, you want to audition? And I said, yeah. They said, what have you got? And I could, I, I didn't know, I, but I, I had learned from watching the rehearsal that we were doing uh, Romeo and Juliet, and I'd learned the balcony scene. But of course, not Romeo's lines. 
So I said, I, I have a Shakespeare monologue I can do. They said, go ahead. And I thought, thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush be paint my cheek. I did Juliet's monologue from, from the balcony scene. I got the job. <laughs> I got cast as um, Amelia, the asthmatic lesbian maid <laughs> to the star's mother. Um, and ended up doing the show at La Mama when they all went off to London with the show <laughs> they for the first time asked how old I was and when they found out I was tossed um, they couldn't take me to London and uh, so they all went off to London and I got a job at a fat camp <laughs> in the Catskills so the opposite. So the opposite. Literally the opposite. Literally the opposite. Was Torch Song Trilogy, which is just one of the most beautiful pieces of theater ever to have lived, um, was that something you developed through La Mama? Yeah, well, um, it's one of those things you really, I mean, the book is very detailed in how it happened because it wasn't one step. It was many, many, many steps um, happening by accident sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, um, and the book really does, I really tried hard to, to make it a natural progression yeah. of how it happened. And it is. Um, but, because it's just interesting um, that something could start out as, as an incident that happened one night that I wrote down and it became a monologue, which then got uh, 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 extended into a play, which then by accident got extended into a trilogy, which then ended up this. I mean, it's it all. It's it's life. I mean, it wasn't. I I never have this. I don't have this plan. I don't. I you know I don't have any of this planned out of how things are gonna go. They just sort of go. And, well, uh, that monologue got you to Broadway eventually. The different young actors in that play, I think Matthew Broderick, Fisher Stevens, Patrick Dempsey, everyone who was in it with you uh, has gone on to be incredibly yeah. successful in their own in their own right. The one thing that I just have to talk about, because there are certain roles you did knowing your history it's not insane that you would be in hairspray. I wanted to ask, did you see Fiddler when you were a kid? Yes, I did. I did. I saw it twice. We, I saw, we saw it with Zero, Mustel, and then we saw it again with Herschel Bernardi. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it made a huge impression on me. One of the, one of the stories I tell in the book, it, that made a huge, you know, because you're seeing, like I said, we're seeing everything. So there was nothing to going into a theater and the curtain goes up and the stage is full of nuns, you know, at Sound of Music. That was not shocking. You know, there was, I figured everyone's Christian. You know, they don't let Jews on, on Broadway. Well, you never saw a Jewish name on a Broadway marquee. So, you know, it's like we used to have these discussions of women in front of my house going, that girl is very talented, but with that nose, they will, she will never be a star. And with that name, you could not possibly put a name like Streisand up on a marquee. She'll never be a star. That's the way I grew up. So it seemed very strange to me. Um, everyone I knew, Danny Kaye, and yeah, they all changed their names. They all got nose jobs, whatever. Jews was not a good thing to be. So um, one day, was sitting in the audience, first row mezzanine, curtain goes up, a man comes walking out with a beard and sitses and a hat and he starts talking about wearing sitses. Yeah. It wasn't by accident that he was wearing tzitzis. He said, we wear these to show our respect to God. And I go, what the fuck is this? And, uh, sorry kids. <laughs> Three times and you get an ice cream cone. Um, and, and, and then out comes a whole bunch of Jews, a whole stage full of Jews. And I sat there blown away, of course, by this, that, that there could be Jews on Broadway. Okay, so jump 150 years. I'm doing Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway at the Minskoff Theater. Wednesday matinees, very often we had a lot of chassids in the audience. And um, 
if you know that theater when you come out um, uh, in the uh, the hallway between there's like a, there's like an underground hallway there and the, uh, the stage door and that's where people would gather for autographs before COVID and you could give people autographs um, and so you come downstairs and you, and you give autographs and there was a whole crowd there waiting um, including a bunch of Hasids but there was a little boy in his black clothing with with his payas wrapped around his ears um and he's just staring up at me kind of like like a kid would stare at like santa claus or something it was like and i said cookie are you okay and he said are you really jewish and my heart just i mean it just ripped the heart right out of me and it was like all of a sudden there I was back you know when I was a kid and I had seen that and um, it was just one of those really wonderful magic moments um, of being there for and I and I tell that story to other people when they go to play uh, Fiddler because obviously that's a role that gets passed on generation to generation there have been two two uh, Tevias on Broadway since since I did it so you pass that on. Your voice is such an iconic part of how people think of you, right? When were you aware that you had a special voice? And what is your relationship to your voice? Because we love it so much, but I don't know if you love it as much as we do. Well, uh, uh, the thing about my voice is I don't hear it. You have to listen to it. I don't. In my mind... You know, it's Fred Astaire in here. It's, you know, it's, it's gorgeous in here. Um, you, it's, it's not something, and I don't listen to myself. I don't listen to recordings of myself or whatever unless I have to. Um, my father had double vocal cords as well. Um, uh, it's like physically, it's Harry, like Harry Belafonte had the same thing. We all have double, we all have uh, false cords and, and main cords, and sometimes they're overdeveloped and you get both vibrating at the same time. That's what my voice is. Plus some damage uh, from doing a lot of uh, early off-off Broadway and not taking care of myself. So it's, it's mixed together. Um, but, it, but but I still have an ear of a singer. I may not sound like a singer, but I still have the ear of a singer. So I'm able to do things like Fiddler or or, um, or, or Hairspray. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. One of the things that is astonishing, and I'm not going to give away the story, because when I tell you you have to read this book, not just because... Harvey's attention to detail and his memory is so extraordinary that he really does take you through his life in a way that you feel like you're watching the film of Harvey Firestein's life. It is one of the most wonderful which is available, memoirs. Which is available. Which is coming, which available is coming soon. Um, he talks about his personal coming out story at the very end of the book. And when you think about his life and sort of who he has been as an activist, and I keep using the words icon and legend because they're true, um, I was so unbelievably moved by the story. I was so, and I'm not giving it away because you have to go buy the book that's right <laughs> back there, and it's worth it, and it is like almost 400 pages until you get there and you're waiting to kind of see we've Harvey has been so generous in the work that he writes and sharing so much of his life with us and much of it is autobiographical but this particular story you've never heard before and it slayed me but my question for you is the choice to you could have also begun the book with this story because it's so absolutely the core of who you are in so many ways. How did you decide as an author, as an artist, where the placement of this reveal would be? Well, the story that she's talking about is one that was is so personal and so painful um, that it's something that I shove aside a lot. You're, you're, Leonard Cohn wrote a line in, in Death Rehearsal Rag, Dress Rehearsal Rag, where he says, um, that's a hard one to remember. It makes you clench your fist and your veins stand out like highways all along your wrist. It's that kind of a memory. It's that kind of a memory. Whenever it would come to me, I would push it aside. It was very painful. Um, so I left it alone, you know. Uh, and then I got to 
this certain point in the book, which had to do with the revival, the recent revival of Tort Song, and something that happened between my brother and I, sitting there watching this revival, where, where I, I had to deal, he and I had to deal with this particular story, and, um, and I tell the story there. So I turn in the book, my, I had this wonderful editor, uh, Peter Gathers is the editor of the book, and he's absolutely terrific. And he changed very little about about um, what I wrote. Every now and then he'd say, could you add a couple of more sentences about this? Or, you know, could you take out a couple of curse words? Um, but basically, he just let me be me. But th- But this story, he said, I think this belongs in the beginning of the book. Huh. And I said, no. I said, it is where it is. At the end, I want them to know who I am. I want them to know everything about me first, and then and then discover this and have this experience with someone they know. I think if it was at the beginning of the book, and I was a stranger to you, it wouldn't mean as much. Mm. Um, also, a stranger to because I talk in the book a lot about my parents and my brother and all that. So I wanted you to know who they were before you judge who they were. Um, which which does happen in that in that chapter, and I guess it's also you know theatrically right. Yes, one hundred percent. It gutted me and it inspired me so deeply, as did the entire book. I also just want to say I thought Funny Girl was fabulous. I saw it yesterday. Um, it is so thrilling to get to be in a room with that material again. Well, it's so fun. You know, the these the golden age musicals are you know the. Musicals have obviously changed. You know, they they began changing with the the stuff that came from England. You know, the the Les Mises and all that, and the Phantoms, and you know, and, and things started changing. And we lost that golden age musical where you sit down and you hear an overture. We don't have overtures anymore. Audiences are too impatient. Audiences want to know how long is this because I got to get home. Uh, before they buy a ticket, they want it to be 90 minutes and not have an intermission so they can be home. Mm. So a Golden Age musical has all this other stuff, has a story that's told to you, more novelly kind of the way that you tell a story. It's different. So when when they asked me to work on Funny Girl, which is seven years ago, because we did it in London first, where it was a big hit in London, and then we were going to bring it here, and then COVID hit. So we waited three years to bring it here. But um, it was just a lot of fun to go back. That score, you know, Don't Rain On My Parade, uh, People, uh, um, 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 I'm the Greatest Star. I mean, every one of those songs just is so incredible. Anyway, it was really a lot of fun to do, and it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, well, I want, uh, I don't want to not let our audience have an opportunity to ask you questions as well. Yeah. So are you okay if we do a little Q&A? Yeah, sure. I ask a question. Okay. Okay. So, uh, away. Susie has a microphone. Oh, you have a microphone. So would anyone, I mean, I have a million more, but if you have some, please raise your hand and just make sure you speak close to the microphone so you can be a part of the podcast. Hello, it's a pleasure. Uh, I do costume design work and lots of different things and we were doing Newsies and I'm reading through and doing my due diligence and I, I have to admit I didn't look at the front page credits of those things yet and I'm reading and I was like, wow, there's nothing here that's wasted, right? I know who these characters are right away from what they say and what others say about them. I said, this is a beautiful, this is a beautifully written book. And then I flipped to the front and there you were. And I went, oh, of course, of course, Harvey. Um, so just wanted to say that that is, was my experience of doing how beautifully you just bring things to the fore and let us know who those people are. Is there anything you'd like to say about where you think is that from observation, from like how did you call a sense of of how to really tell who people are economically like that? Um, the first 
Broadway musical I was ever hired to write was La Caja Fall. Um, Torch Song was still off off Broadway when they came to me. Uh, well, off Broadway when they came to me, um, and they and I was hired, and then they hired Jerry Herman, and Jerry and I had already started working, and then they brought in Arthur Lawrence. When they brought in Arthur Lawrence, there's a wonderful story that's in the book that we're not going to tell now about once again Shirley MacLaine and Arthur Lawrence. But uh, yeah, you do have to read that. It's a great story. But um, Arthur had written. West Side Story, Gypsy, The Turning Point. Arthur wrote everything. And this was the man who was going to direct my show. So as I wrote, I was getting the best university in the world. I had a, somebody who said, you don't need this, you don't need this, cut this, do that. And I, and I just, I mean, the, he was the most horrible human being you could ever meet in your life. He was the most terrible, meanest, oh, oh, cruel beyond words. And yet um, gave me this incredible gift of his knowledge, um, which is the best thing we can ever do for each other. Teachers. I am a, my mom was a teacher, and I am a huge believer that teachers change your life. Teachers make you who you are, the right teacher. I have friends who say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my kid. My kid's not whatever. I say, and I say, change this school. If they haven't found that teacher yet, change the school until they find the right teacher. I've had teachers that turn me off to things, and I had teachers in art and design. I had Max Ginsburg. Well, I talked to Max this week. I I still talk to Max. And um, there are teachers that do that for you. There's a gentleman here that we wanted to ask a question. Raise your hand. Damn, you don't need to ask nothing. This one there. No, you don't need to ask nothing, Paulie. (laughs) Hi, guys. It's so nice (laughs) to meet you. I am a huge fan, and I actually have... Um, to share something with both of you, you guys have a huge impact on my life. One, Alana, uh, I used to listen to your podcast years ago when I first was getting ready to move to the city and fond memories of listening to all these amazing artists uh, and their story as I'm driving late night to the city uh, from Detroit, Michigan. Um, so I want to share that with you. And also, Harvey, same thing. Uh, your Everything in your career has always inspired me. Uh, I read your book. It was amazing. My question for you is... Uh, You know, years ago when I was dreaming about living in New York City, now that I do, I I work uh, in the village, I sing in the duplex every week, I have all these amazing parts of my life that I'm so proud of. When I was a kid dreaming of those things and trying to, like, imagine it, you in your book talk about being up at 3 a.m. at your desk in that tiny little basement apartment. Um, And I want to know... When you were doing that, was that something that you talk about your journey just unfolding naturally? When you were sitting down writing that really powerful thing that was coming out of you naturally, and you said something so beautiful in the book, something along the lines of, I got to say what I didn't say, you know, when it happened in my real life. And I thought that was so powerful, it really affected me. But my question for you is, when you were sitting there at 3 a.m., in, the, in this tiny little apartment in the basement and you're writing this, did you know at the time the power of what was happening in that moment? Uh, and did you have any tiny inkling that this was, there's something here, there's, there's power here? Absolutely not. Uh, he was asking if you, when you're writing, do you know it's a powerful whatever? You, um, you don't paint for someone else's eyes. You don't write for someone else's ears, um, unless it's a specific thing. I mean, there's there are there are there are op-ed pieces. Op-ed pieces, I certainly do, and I want to twist your brain, and I want to and I want to get inside your head and change your thinking. Because people say, "Is Arnold based on you?" Yes, Arnold's based on me, but Ed's based on me also. The mother's based on me also. I wrote them all. They're all part of me. They all have parts of people I've met. Some is true, some is made up. It's the way you write. But when you, when I sat down to write the book, I said, this has to be as truthful as I can be. Um, and and it, this has to be, even when it hurts, you, you gotta say this stuff. So when I got, and I was describing writing, you're, you're, he's talking about a scene between Arnold and the mother in Torch Song when the mother says something horrible to Arnold and um, when it happened in real life 
I was silent. When I was writing the play, I didn't have to be silent anymore. I had all this time and I was able to say what I wanted to say. Um, so that's a little cheating in that writing, but, but in the long run, it, it works. Hey, Harvey, thank you so much. Um, in the book, you talk a little bit about the different versions of Lacage and how in London you got to actualize your vision of the show as opposed to Jerry's. Um, and then that show came to the United States. What I, I, we'd love to understand, what was a fundamental difference from you and, and what did Jerry think about your version of the show? Um, my Jerry Herman is the opposite of Arthur Lawrence, was one of the sweetest human beings you'd ever meet in your life. Um, in the 40 years that we were together from writing Lacage, from starting to write Lacage through his death two years ago, um, we never had a fight. We had almost one fight when, um, when, when, um, not, it wasn't Nixon, but somebody like Nixon used uh, used best of times in their campaign. And I freaked out. I said, how dare you? And he said, I can't control that. It's a... S anyway. Um, so, so, the way I describe La Casha Fall, you got all those drag queens and all that stuff. That's not what the show's about. The show is about a man trying to keep his first wife the son from his first marriage and his second wife from killing each other. That's all the show's about. It's a family show. Um, all the rest of the stuff is 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 set dressing, um, but it's really it's that the 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 kid wants to get married. He has this horrible family he's married in, marrying into. He's got a new wife that doesn't want to put up with this stuff. The, and and it's to keep them from killing each other. That's what moves the show. That's what the drama's about. That's what the discovery is. The discovery is they're all family. In the original production, Arthur Lawrence was so scared of putting this on Broadway that he put women in the in the in the drag line. I mean, I've never seen a drag club with women drag queens. Uh, well, now in RuPaul we do, but but back then, um, and everything was gorgeous, and it was a a beautiful marble mansion that they lived in, and all that. I said, "This is not what I wrote. I wrote to me, I wrote a family that had a business on the first floor, and they lived upstairs." You know, they had a grocery store on the first floor, happened to be a drag club, and, but then they lived upstairs. So the apartment was full of all the crap that came from the stage. They didn't have room for it downstairs. Drag it upstairs. So I imagine this, this world of real people, and they put up this world of not real people at all. On the other hand, it was a huge hit, and it ran six years. My version of it, Mm, might not have made it till Thursday. So you don't know. Um, when we revived it and Jerry Zaks did it, he did it that same way. And I went to Jerry Herman and I said, Jerry, I really had hoped we'd finally do an honest, after all these years, we'd do an honest version. And he, and he said, Harvey, let me have this one and you can have the next. I said, okay, and that's the version, the London version you're talking about, which I don't know if you all saw with, with um, Kelsey Grammer and, and Doug Hodge, and and they, it was drag queens with big um, uh, bouncing balls, and I mean, it was just silliness and fun and, and small, and there was an orchestra of seven, which made Jerry insane. Um, you know, anything under 20 instruments, and he didn't want to hear about it, so... All right, one more question. Oh, Paulie. Uh, Harvey. Uh, and he has to get up, too. <laughs> to show how tall I am. To show how tall I am. Uh, ten years ago, in an in interview with Michael Mustow, uh, perhaps jokingly, you said uh, anybody seven year, uh, 70 or older would be too old to be of a romantic interest to you. Now that you're 70, has that... <laughs> line changed one of the great fights i have with producers though is it's like every 65 year old queen wants to star in tort song 
And I have to say, the character's not even 30 years old. Could you please do something else? Leave this show alone. I understand why they all want to do it. But, and it's the same thing, La Cage The guy had an affair when he was 20. The kid is 20 now. He's 40. Tops, but they always cast a 65, 70 year old man in that in that role. It makes me crazy. These are shows about younger people. I wrote them when I was younger. Anyway, uh, but but no, I, uh, obviously, um, I think 70 is the prettiest year. Why? What do you hope? You wrote this gorgeous, gorgeous memoir. What do you hope people take away from it? Jeez. Oh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I do feel a responsibility for some of the people that have died and whose stories I tell. I do feel that responsibility. Um, so many of my friends um, did not make it. If anything comes out of the book, I think I've told the truth as much as I can, and maybe there's enough truth to to go around. And as a reader, you honored your friends so beautifully, oh, thank you. and and their memory lives on. And now they their memory lives on in me, and uh, and they will live on in everyone who reads this book, and they live on in the gorgeous, gorgeous way you live your life with integrity and art and tremendous generosity. There's not a young artist working today who, when they have an opportunity to sit with you or or be gazed upon by you, where they don't come away feeling empowered to do their best work. You have really passed the baton and paid it forward in incredible ways. And on behalf of the universe, I just want to thank Harvey Firestein for your time today. Thank you. For your glorious art, for your beautiful book. Can't wait to see the next one. And thank you for doing this. And are you going to do all the rest of these? Yeah, yeah. So she'll be here all summer, right? (laughs) So come back. I'm actually here. I'll just be sitting here. I'll be here 24-7. Yeah. Her husband brings her lunch. Yep. Um, Thank you. Thank you to Brian Park. Thank you to everyone who runs the reading room. The idea that this park, which did not look like this when I was growing up, (laughs) is now home to the most extraordinary artists and cultural events and a haven for people in New York City. And thank you, Susie, for inviting me to do this. To John Zaytun, who couldn't be here today, and to everyone at Brian Park, and to all of you for spending your lunchtime with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you so much, Harvey. That was wonderful. And I hope to see you all back in the reading room soon. Thank you so much. One more thing. I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.